Hey everybody, welcome to Gray Malkin Lane's newest Patreon episode. I am thrilled to be joined by my good buddy in real life, uh, Mr. George Michael Duvin. How are you, Mr. George Michael Duvin? I am doing outstanding. How are you? You know, I am also pretty outstanding. I just got to spend a lovely weekend in FlameCon uh, in New York City, and I am still kind of reeling from it a little bit. It was uh, it was lovely. Um, yesterday was a like 3 a.m. wake up time, East Coast time. Gross. I to be back for work uh, here and my body's still mad from all of the standing in planes because I'm an old man. <laughs> <laughs> I would be mad too. How are you, my friend? I'm good. Not nearly as tired as you, but always tired because I also am an old man. <laughs> I'm older than you barely so so uh so i moved to uh i moved to salt lake city utah 11 years ago and uh mike here was one of my very first friends uh we've been friends a long time but we've always been comic book buddies and mike's been on the podcast uh i don't know three times if i'm remembering i I lost count three or four uh last time i think was with bob quinn and we laughed our asses off yep Bob's actually coming back on the podcast tomorrow. I get to see him uh, and hang out with him tomorrow. It's going to be great. Well, send my love. I will. I'll tell him. I'll tell him <laughs> a, a hearty hello from uh, from you, uh, uh, Mike. Uh, I'm just going to call you Mike for the duration That's of this podcast. Perfect. Mike is also my barber. So if you've ever admired my haircut, it's because of the wondrous mutant abilities of George Michael Duvin. You've got wonderful hair for podcast. Sort of like having a face for radio. <laughs> uh, Mike is literally sitting uh, in the upstairs of my house so that we can both uh, meet on computer over Wi-Fi. And here we are. Um, I'm going to stomp on the floor if I need anything. Well, or you could just talk to me since I'm looking at your face. That's true. <laughs> uh, Mike, when I first was talking to you about the idea of this Patreon episodes, uh, I give you a long list of characters and you chose the enigmatic shape-shifting changeling uh what made you pick this particular character mostly the hat to be honest (laughs) no plus i honestly i really liked him in his later um not changeling appearances and i'm just curious to delve deeper into his history before the morph that we know if that makes sense there's not a lot of it you think but then it turns out there's more than you think we'll talk about that today i just uh i just had some commissioned art for my wall done uh on the changeling which i think i showed you uh and it's gorgeous and now i love him even more have you seen it i will show you in real time as we are sitting like isn't that beautiful who's that by again uh, I need to go look up the. Oh, it's by it's uh his name on on uh Twitter and Instagram is Art by Lucas. Okay, uh, he's, he's a well known online artist, but I've never met him. So, well, he looks very maniacal. Yes, with his trademark stupid hat. I always uh, I always ask in commission pieces to use their original '60s costume, but do their own interpretation. So my art wall gets uh, a lot of different types of things, but uh, Changeling's looking great in that uh, in that image. So uh, we'll post some. He even did a he did another version with some letters on it, like "Enter the Changeling," you know, with like the X Men mm-hmm. logo. It's cute. Um, what did you know of before we did our research for today? What did you know of about the Changeling? All I had known is that. 
the character that we know as Morph was originally the changeling and that he had uh, stepped in for a while for Professor X when Professor X was doing secret basement stuff and then died with the first death of Professor X. Do you ever do secret basement stuff, Mike? Well, I live in a one-story condo, so I'm, my downstairs neighbor wouldn't appreciate my basement stuff. Well, if you had a secret basement, then your downstairs neighbor wouldn't necessarily know about oh. it. Yes, that's a good, good point. <laughs> basement now. <laughs> my mind is, is reeling with the thoughts of a hypothetical secret basement. I think if you had a secret basement, it would be some sort of sex thing. Yeah, probably. Yeah, or like a secret place where you perm old ladies' hairs. Yes, because I don't do that. But I do it in secret in my secret basement. It's my secret perm basement. It smells funny. The 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 reason that's funny for our listeners is uh, Mike does amazing men's haircuts, but is famously shy about perms. That's why it was funny to put it as a secret in the basement. So my secret downstairs neighbor, well, she's not secret. She's a little old lady named Gay. When I first met her, she's like, hi, I'm Gay. And I wanted to say, me too. But I didn't. I refrained. But anyway, <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, she she she's like, hey, um, would you cut my hair? And I'm like, I really don't do women, like traditional, like longer women's haircuts. But if it's easy, I can do it. So a week ago, we had a cute little on her patio in a chair, me cutting her hair. It looked good. I was pretty happy how it turned out. I did the one traditional women's haircut that I know on her. You're like, if you would love to look like a handsome lesbian, like my friend Chad, then. Yes. When I think Chad, I think handsome lesbian. That's what most people think. I get that a lot. I'm just kidding. Uh, so let's delve in. We, uh, I know, I know you are again long-term comic fan. Uh, I think you equal me in nerdiness when it comes to comics, uh, which is one of the reasons we get along so well in real life. You're one of my few real life. Let's talk about comic book friends. You and Corey friended each other. I remember after a swim meet, we sat down at a dinner and we just talked nerd and alienated everyone else at the table, and it was amazing. Mike has a Batman Superman tattoo on his back and we joined the same swim team and I was like, comic books, let's be friends. And then it turned <laughs> out great. Uh, so we've been doing the 60s books uh, and we've talked a little bit about Changeling kind of in isolated spaces. But whenever I'm analyzing a character's whole history like we are about to, I always learn a ton. And frankly, we'll, we'll get to this in a minute, but I get to surprise you with some stuff today because I learned about some stuff about the Changeling that I was not aware of. Uh, <laughs> what's that he has a secret basement there <laughs> i mean kinda we'll, <laughs> we'll we'll talk about it in just a minute but i found a wealth of information on this character that i wasn't aware was in existence uh so let's begin so the word changeling is defined as quote a child believed to have been secretly substituted by fairies for the parent's real child in infancy so it's like the old mythological thing where like the the fairies steal your baby and replace it with a changeling. And then your baby exists in, you know, other world or wherever. And now you're left with this husk of a child. Uh, so it's kind of a great name. I actually was not aware of that definition before looking it up. I just assumed it meant uh, shape changer. What are your thoughts on this code name for this character? I mean, it, uh, reading the notes a little bit, it kind of makes sense. Kind of because he, I mean, we'll get into his young origins, but yeah. I, I mean, plus it fits the powers really well. He 
changes shape as you find out eventually after what six appearances or so he finally reveals his powers and like a one panel throwaway in a very chaotic end to a very chaotic battle but yeah it's uh it's like very quickly mentioned he's very much a throwaway character until you make him not yeah Uh, and we'll we'll talk about that today the, the changeling himself uh, is the OG shape changer. He's the mutant that can uh, match other people's appearances, um, which often involves being able to like change your skin into clothing and match people's retina scans and fingerprints. And frankly, for some characters, even their, uh, their psychology in some ways. So if their mind is red, you can't tell. Uh, there are a wealth of shape-changing mutants at this point, but changeling is the original. Uh, who are some of your favorite shapeshifters? Um, like, well, I'm, I was always a big fan of his later form in Age of Apocalypse. And you can't deny Mystique. Mystique is amazing. And Megan from Excalibur is a right. favorite. Yeah, she's in a... Now, is she more of an em- empathetic? Like, like, can she change on will? Or does she change based on how you perceive her or how you feel about her? Like, both. is she more right now? She's I done both. Okay. She's an empathic changer, but there have been times when she has changed her form also. Uh, we also have that character, Benjamin Deeds, who took the codename Morph oh, yeah. that, was, uh, that was a little later. Yeah. And there's been a few others along the way, but um, Mystique always, of course, being yeah. the, the, the one that rules them all. The changing queen. She's incredible. It'll take a long time, but we'll get to her on the podcast eventually. There will be a trial of Mystique one day, mark my words. It'll be a very long trial. She's got a lot to answer for it. I'm good. I mean, I just did Namor, who has more than anyone. I can I can keep it truncated when I got to. <laughs> I just uh, I just did my side note. I just did my write up on the Havoc trial, which we're having in like six weeks, and I'm like all havoced out right now. I'm like, oh, I love this guy. He's uh he's fun. Uh, anyway, Changeling shows up in the 1960s X Men. Roy Thomas has taken over the book, uh, and he's put in a long term plot line. He's given us a villain. Uh, group that's behind the scenes they seem to have unlimited resources unlimited power uh their name is factor three which we learn is uh is supposed to be roy thomas jokes regularly about how it sounds like a dishwasher detergent or a toothpaste brand or something but uh it's during the cold war so america is factor one russia's factor two and then the mutant group is factor three and we know very little about them uh, they kind of show up and like manipulate things. So like in X-Men 28, Ogre and uh, Banshee, who has like a headband that's controlling him, go to America and they've been sent to capture Professor X and to like get some technology. Uh, uh, Banshee frees himself from them. And X-Men 32, they trigger like an explosion in Xavier's house, which frees Juggernaut who attacks the X-Men. And while they're doing that, Factor 3 agents kidnap Professor X and blow up Cerebro. And then it's in issues 35 and 36 in the original run where things kind of get really heated. Banshee uh, is, I don't know, there's there's a whole bunch of shit that happens. There's these weird spider bots, Spider-Man's involved, Banshee gets captured, Professor X is unconscious, threat goes crazy. The X-Men come to uh, Europe and uh, while they are on their plane, on their way to Europe, after they had to like beg for cash in order to get here. <laughs> you know xavier doesn't give them allowances when he's kidnapped uh that's when we first get our vision of like a man wearing a very strange hat he kind of looks like a fancy high heel with the dildo stuck through the middle at <laughs> first appearance it's like this background shot of this weird hat uh 
And there's a man, this who turns out to be the changeling, who yells, the fools, do they really believe that merely by changing back to their student selves, they can escape the watchful eye of factor three? Like he has the plane fucking shot down and uh, uh, he's very re ready to just like trounce all over these people. This guy comes across as pretty savage. He says, they're never gonna reach us alive. And uh, the X-Men of course survive and storm the base. Uh, and then in X-Men 37 is when we finally get our first glimpse of Changeling. His hat is orange and pink. Uh, describe oh, this man. <laughs> describe this man for us, like in his original costume. It's a very, very strange, uh, strange view. Um, he's he, he's weird. Yeah, I mean, if your power is change shapes why would you choose a hat like that it has nothing to do with anything i don't know i dig the hat though and the chin strap keeps it on because i'm sure that thing weighs a ton but also the side view amuses me because it looks like a saddle it looks like some littler person could like sit up there or maybe he's got a small child that he carries around on his head that just never appears but yeah it looks like a little kid's like horse ride from the side he's got like three concentric circles on the hat it looks like like somebody screwed them into his chest they screwed his onto him. like all blue like blue spandex with like purple briefs purple gloves uh purple necklace and suspenders and then like this crazy fucking purple hat which is sometimes orange and i don't know he, he uh i mean let me, let me ask you a question if you're a shapeshifter why do you choose a hat like that that's a good question i didn't figure it out i'm like why the hat i think he wants attention <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm going to stay with the hypothesis that he's got a small child that rides on his head off panel. He does horseback rides on his head. Either that or maybe like the mutant master who we'll talk about in a minute made him wear this. He's like, this is what you wear if you want to be in charge or, or you're out. <laughs> and he's like, fine, I'll wear the hat. <laughs> General Tat, you're wearing it. <laughs> uh, Changeling's hanging out in the Factor 3 headquarters and He's watching or reviewing some sort like somehow he got recorded vision or recorded footage of the X-Men battling Juggernaut. And he says, the Juggernaut was the ultimate personification of power. A human fighting machine uh, would have that would have demolished a tank, yet the accursed X-Men managed to defeat him not merely once, but twice. Factor three must know why and how. And you kind of get the idea that he's the leader of this group. This is where we get our first like shot of his face. He's like uh, kind of in shallow shadow uh like a blue tint over his eyes uh he yells i have seen enough these scenes have shown all we heed to assure us of our victory of these infernal teenagers how fortunate that we were able to extract them from the memory of our captive professor x so apparently they have technology that can like pull xavier's brain like memories out and play them on a screen oh 1960s technology that's what the hat does i don't know if, uh, if Changeling wired you into this machine, which of your memories would you not want him seeing and or masturbating to? Anything that happens in my secret basement. <laughs> not the perms. <laughs> you can see anything but the perms. Not my perms. <laughs> so many curls I cannot. <laughs> oh, goodness. Uh, so uh, this is where like Changeling gets really, really savage. He he shoots the plane down. He means fucking business. He fires missiles at them. Uh, he sends like a whole bunch of really deadly spider bots and a bunch of agents in like fucking 
purple robes with yellow goggles. I hate I hate the Factor Three group costumes. Did you Did you look at those? They're they're god awful. Yeah, they're pretty bad. It reminds me of something I don't know, like Doctor Who from nineteen seventy. I don't know. It's it's terrible. The costumes are awful. Do you have any any thoughts on those designs? No. Trying to pull them up real quick and take a peek again. They're a little gag worthy. Just blech. Uh, the X-Men fight back, uh, Factor 3 hit them with knockout gas and then put them in this like force bubble. And then a giant screen reveals who the mysterious members of Factor 3 finally are. Blob, Mastermind, Eunice the Untouchable, and Vanisher. Uh, from those four, Mr. Duven, you can play Fuck, Mary Kill, but it has to be Blob, Mastermind, and Vanisher. Uh, they're all awful. I'd marry the Blob. Fred's a good dude. He makes a main drink these days, and he grows a great mustache. I would just probably kill the other two. They're you probably could, you could fuck Mastermind. He can be anyone you want. That's true, but I also maybe want to fuck the Vanisher because he just leave afterwards and just vanish. That's just good. He's like, <laughs> he's probably gone before I even get a chance to. There's no awkward like, okay, here's your shoes. Thanks, that was fun. <laughs> He just vanishes. He's gone. Makes it easy. Leaves a thousand dollars on your nightstand because that's you know I'm, that's what I charge in my secret basement. <laughs> if 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 it's the vanisher, you're allowed. Yeah. Um, so the the changeling, uh, then we see this like mysterious figure sitting behind him up on a high dais. He has the same three circles that like uh, that are screwed into him. It looks like um, the changeling is like super maniacal in this appearance he's yelling at teenagers you are scarcely in a position to be giving orders cyclops we shall forgive your unseemly arrogance for the present still stand warned you are in a court of law and anything you say may be held against you uh cyclops calls changeling a refugee from a perry mason rerun <laughs> did, did you ever watch perry mason uh i fell asleep during it as a kid it was always on a reruns after like a good show like Adam's Family or something. And Perry yeah, Mason's, Perry Mason's like an old court show. This is yeah. not a very good insult. It's like the only court thing Cyclops could think of. Uh, it's, oh, the only yeah. court thing on TV at the time. The only culture um, court thing in the sixties, possibly. Cyclops should not quit his day job uh, as a comedian. As a as a DJ. <laughs> as an AM radio news announcer. <laughs> we kept calling him a dj and then i realized he's just reading the news for like the yeah. crowd yeah uh changeling tells them they are on trial for their very lives and here's where he first tells them i am called the changeling i am your prosecutor he says in the best traditions of western jurisprudence you shall receive a fair trial with all evidence duly weighed and then you shall be destroyed uh the uh <laughs> Then he then he announces that he is second in command to the mutant master. Tell us about the mutant master, Mike. Well, he's not a mutant. <laughs> Surprise! He's a pretty crappy master. I don't know. It's it's interesting because he ends up wanting to become master of the mutants instead of a mutant uh, master who is a mutant, if that makes sense. But uh, yeah, I mean, he's very throwaway as well. Does he, he never appears again after this, right? Nope, nope, he's never around again. 
uh, he he we we're gonna learn he's a big giant alien who wants to conquer the planet, but he's pretending to be a mutant to get mutants on his side. That's kind of <laughs> his mo. So take what we know about Changeling so far. Who is this guy? Where does he come from? What's he doing with this group Factor Three? Any ideas? At this point, we have no clue because he's just there shaking his fists and chewing out teenagers, putting them on trial. Like I don't think he gets a backstory in this series. In this does he he gets nothing he doesn't if i was inferring i mean i'm gonna give him some sort of similar origin of he's a mutant guy who hasn't been treated very well and uh feels like i don't know maybe he's heard about the sentinels the humans are gonna come after him because he comments on not liking humans and how they treat people if i remember right in this if we give him the same motivations as like Vanisher, Blob, Eunice, Mastermind, who have joined this group, Factor Three, like what would you say their motivations in joining this group are, knowing what we know about them? I know Blob would join because you know he's been mistreated by by humans and by the X Men alike. The X Men were kind of douchey to him. Um, I don't remember I'm trying to think of Eunice why he would. I mean, I'm trying to remember his motivations in his earlier appearances if he had any. I mean, you can look. At, you can look at these four guys just in the way the X Men treated him. Professor X deleted Blob and Unison. Yeah. I'm sorry, oh, Vanisher's minds. Yeah. Uh, Beast built that gun that blocked Unison's powers and made him like unable to eat. Oh and, yeah. So uh, I'll hate the X Men because the X Men were dicks to them, basically. Well, yeah. and and Mastermind got turned to stone. Like the whole uh, the whole group has been treated awfully. So you kind of assume that Changeling is in league with them somehow, but that's really all you're left to infer. You know nothing about his powers. There's no backstory. He's just the guy yelling. But uh, they have this mock trial and then the Avengers, uh, oh my God, the Avengers, the X-Men are sentenced to death by the Changeling. Uh, we then, we we kind of see what their plan is a little bit. It's this complex, we don't have to go into all the details, but they're using some tricks and some tools to drive the West at war with the East. Mm-hmm. Their plan is to, once nuclear radiation like wipes out all the humans, the mutants will like, you know, take care of the rest, which tells you a lot about these people that they just don't give a shit about anyone but themselves. You almost wonder if there's some sort of mind control or maybe they think it won't go so far. Uh, but it's a it's a pretty awful plot line. They want to fucking destroy the planet, basically, and then rule the ruins. Uh, I don't know. Any thoughts on that? I mean, it seems par for the course for that age. But I mean... I'm trying to remember uh, the mutant master's motivation because he, I don't know, spoiler alert to, you know, a podcast we already did. He's an alien, right? He's, what, yeah, he's, he was his, he's just using mutants to get his guild role, right? Yeah, we don't really know what his goal is either. He just wants <laughs> to destroy the fucking planet and like live on it. Maybe his people need a space. Maybe he's just a destructive dude. Uh, part of me wonders if like Mastermind's just fucking with them all and created this guy as an illusion in the background. Like, <laughs> like this, I don't know. It's kind of a nonsense story and it's rushed. That's that's yeah. the biggest problem with this factor. Yeah, yeah they keep developing this for a year and then all of a sudden they just end it, you know? Yeah, it's like a very quick snap your fingers. Everything's crunched together. Even that panel where the, the mutant master changes into the giant like tentacle monster alien that he is, is like a background panel. You don't even get a clear view of this guy. He's just like a purple octopus. It's uh, <laughs> it's rather uh, unpleasant. Anyway, Changeling like hits the X-Men with a stun charge. He tries to kill them with an Oblivio Ray, which you have. 
That's you have yeah. that in your secret basement, right? Yeah. You need a backup <laughs> Oblivio Ray in case the first Oblivio Ray, you know, fails. And oh my God, we have a perm tie in here. I didn't realize okay. he straps all the X-Men into like a machine that looks like they're mm -hmm. getting their hair done in like an old mm -hmm. beauty parlor. That's so there, there you go. Are you, the, are you the mutant master? Prize. No, actually at my, uh, where I went to cosmetology school, we had a portable one of those and it looked like Cerebro. And every time I'd see someone under it, I just wanted to yell at them and call them Professor X because it just looked like a portable Cerebro unit. But anyway. <laughs> Uh, so I'm just going to kind of sum up 3839 relatively quickly. X-Men escape and they defeat Factor 3. Surprise. But at the end, we also learned that the mutant master is this giant fucking alien. So all of the members of Factor 3 end up teaming with the X-Men to defeat him. And then it explodes. The whole base does. That's kind of where things go. But there is a little period of time where the mutant master starts being really harsh with the changeling. Mm -hmm. Changeling's starting to grow a little bit suspicious. There's even one moment where Changeling uh, asks the mutant master how the X-Men could have survived. And he yells, fools, or fool, what can such things matter? We aim at nothing less than to establish mutant supremacy over the remnants of a war-torn planet, and you waste your thoughts on insignificant trifles. And he yells back, have a care, sire. No man or mutant calls the Changeling a fool, for immobile as you are, you can do nothing without my help. Was it not I who gathered your agents from among the X-Men's greatest enemies? Did I not? And then the mutant master fucking zaps him with a ray that like shocks him. Uh, so we learned that Changeling put this group together. He's been working for the mutant master as an agent kind of putting this team at, together. He's running things behind the scenes. Uh, but he's starting to question things now. Uh, any thoughts on this? Um. Yeah, I mean, because he doesn't have any qualms with the X-Men himself. Everyone else does. So he's like, why do you want to kill him? Makes sense to me. And if we're fighting for mutant supremacy, then they're mutants. So, like, yeah. I mean, plus, as we find out, he's not all that bad a guy. He kind of falls in the mixed crowd for whatever motivations that we don't see at this point. Adverse, but, adverse circumstances have clearly yeah. left him here. And we have, a, we have a lot of examples of this over the years, like villains who are like, oh God, this maniac that I'm following took things yeah. too far. Um, there's a moment of self-doubt that Changeling has where he's, he says, the master grows more intolerably arrogant with each passing minute. We mutants agreed to serve him out of hatred for normal humans because of their fear and hostility towards us. Yet, have we merely exchanged our roles as outcasts for those of slaves? But we shall consider that later when the world of Homo sapiens lies in smoldering radioactive ruins. Uh, so we get we get like a little bit of a human touch here, but also he's very committed to this cause at the same time. I'll just I'll decide this after I murder billions of people. Um, any thoughts on this? I I think it shows a little complexity to his character, but you have to really yeah. for it. I mean, some complexity for this era is good because there's generally not much of any. But yeah, no, seems pretty straightforward. Uh, there's also one really great moment with the changeling. Xavier is like in restraints with power blockers on. And uh, Xavier calls the changeling a fool during an interchange. Uh, <laughs> changeling then like he has, he just fucking slaps Xavier across the face. Like, just I mean, We all kind of want it. He's like, I'll fucking kill you. Uh, uh, did you enjoy the, the the infamous slap? Yes, we we all were waiting for it. Somebody had to do it. It should really happen more often. I 
I no. want Changeling back on Krakoa, if only to see him slap Professor X across the face one more time. Yeah, and just sit in for Professor X anytime he needs to go off and do something. <laughs> like go to a secret basement or a bathhouse. So as the battle is kind of wrapping up, we see Changeling's power demonstrated in one very quick panel. When he disguises himself as Professor X, uh, but Jean exposes him because she can tell it's not the real one. And uh, then uh, the mutant master is exposed and he just blows up and everything's done. Uh, it's a it's a quick resolution to a crazy story that even Roy Thomas didn't like very much. <laughs> <laughs> Not my favorite. Factor 3 is maybe the most forgettable group the X-Men have fought over the years. Uh, added to, like, what other forgettable groups, uh, villain groups? Uh, Hard yes. Case of the Harriers comes to mind. <laughs> I remember. There was, like, a group of three old men they were like hunting people. Oh God! Oh, that the M Squad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's certainly been some stupid ones over the years, but uh, Factor Three is, despite the global threat that they were, it's not my favorite story. Uh, then we jump into another era of the X Men. The book is like flipping on its head every five seconds right now. Uh, Professor X sends the team off to fight an alien version of the Frankenstein's monster. Uh, and the X-Men start commenting on how he's acting like pretty harsh. Uh, mm -hmm. he's, he's extra rough on them. He's like really goddamn grumpy, way more than usual. It's like screaming at them during their training. He's also holding private training sessions with Jean Grey to help her learn how to use her telepathy. Uh, and the next couple issues, they face the monster Grotesque. I just did a literally a whole episode in the Patreon before this about Grotesque. So we won't spend a lot of time here, but... He's a rather sympathetic villain that ends up murdering Professor X. Uh, but it's not Professor X, it's the Changeling. Um, just to kind of sum up this story very quickly. Uh, this is not Xavier, but at the time you're made to think it's Xavier. Uh, Xavier goes on a mission himself to try to stop Grotesque. And he basically activates a nuclear device to draw Grotesque in. Uh, Grotesque then has access to the device and Xavier has to try to use his psychic powers to stop it. There's the infamous uh, panel where he's like, I have to concentrate harder, harder, harder. <laughs> uh, but the machine is activated. The planet's going to be destroyed, but uh, they managed to stop it at the last minute. You see Xavier literally stand up to <laughs> stop this machine. Uh, the machine explodes and then uh, Xavier is dead. And as he lays dying, he gives one final speech. Uh, do you want to read us his speech on the bottom of page five the, the, in our notes? Yeah, actually, yeah. Let's see, let's pull it up on that. There we go. He says, quiet, Warren. Yeah. I did edit together three panels just so it looks like he says, shut up, Warren. These are my last words, and then he dies. I, I'll show that to you later. I was amused by that. But anyway, um, <laughs> he said, quiet, Warren, let me speak. That's an order, my last order. And then I edit them together so it looks like he just dies after that. His last order is like, shut up, Warren. But anyway, he goes on. <laughs> the subhuman called grotesque was the last of his race, sworn to perish on a desecrated earth. Radiation from underground atomic tests must have destroyed his whole race deformed his body and his mind. I sense this and I hope to stop him myself before my time was up. But anyway, then he, uh, let's see. 
He says he's been keeping some secrets. He has an illness that can't be cured. And he says, but we stopped grotesque. He didn't destroy the earth. We won. We. (laughs) (laughs) Dave and I both just stuck our tongues out as if we are. And then he shit himself because that's what happened. Uh, and then we get this gorgeous panel of uh, the winged angel like cradling Professor X's dead body. And the caption box is, I actually really love this. We recounted this on this episode of the podcast. The caption box says, there's a time for words, a time when they can lift my lift men's spirits or change the shape of human history. Uh, oh my God. Or change the shape of history yet unwritten. A time when they can explain away and a time when they can offer the balm of solace to the aching heart. But as the shocked and saddened X-Men watch the tearful angel lift the limp form of Charles Xavier from amidst still smoking debris, it is time for not save silence. Uh, Tell me your thoughts on uh, Changelings. Again, we'll get to the Changeling part, but Xavier's epic death scene while saving the planet from the device that he armed in the first place. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that Changeling got to go out with a bang. We'll get into his motives for joining up and doing this for him. But yeah, like I'm glad he had a heroic death. Oh, I saw your panels. (laughs) Shut up, Angel. Uh, and that's it for the changeling. We don't even know it was him because uh, retcons later, but he's buried in Charles Xavier's grave. There are some scenes in the following months where the X-Men read Xavier's will. They have his funeral. Xavier is hiding in the basement the whole time. And it's not until X-Men 65, which is a couple years later in publication history, when we learn that Professor X is actually still alive. Uh, he has sensed the powerful alien. How do you how do you pronounce this alien race's name? Uh, let's see, Xenox. The the Xenox is how I say it, but I'm sure it's slightly different for everyone. Xenox. It's it's Xenox. Xenox, or maybe maybe Xenox. Well, it's like you know, it's Xenox. <laughs> I don't know, Xenox. I'm going to go with the Xenox for now, but uh, he's the only one who can stop them. I'll do a Xenox episode another time if I ever get around to it. Uh, But he admits to the X-Men that he lied. He says, uh, they, they, they say, we buried you. And he goes, no, I rather a person brave and in the final accounting good uh, while engaged in telepathic scar star scanning because that's a thing he apparently does looking for bird women in space. Yeah, uh, he, he was said, looking at uh, GR porn, <laughs> starting unhealthy um, obsession. He's into feathers. Uh, he it, says, I had accidentally learned of the... <laughs> I had accidentally learned of the impending Xenox invasion and was desperately seeking a means of countering it when... And we flash back to Xavier's lab. There's a very sickly looking man in a trench coat with a full head of black hair. So this seems to be the template for Morph in the animated series. I like the Morph you see in the animated series. It's like very sickly looking. And even Uh, the way he talks in this issue is very reminiscent of how Morph talks in the animated series. So let's go to page six here in our notes for a sec. Uh, I'll, I'll read Xavier. You read Changeling in this scene. So it's during the flashback, Xavier says, what in the name of, how did you get past our alarms? It wasn't hard for a guy of my experience. Remember me, Prof? Yes, you call yourself the Changeling. Xavier, I got a favor to ask. 
I just come from a docs. I'm a goner. I got maybe six months left to live, maybe six issues, and I want to make them out. I want to maybe make up for some of the rotten things I've done. I sense your sincerity, and I do have a task for you if you're willing. I want you to become me. Changeling changes into Xavier's form and says, Nothing easier for a guy with my talent. No, I've got your looks, but not your mental powers. And this yeah, is where maybe I think more. Oh, go ahead. Honestly, it reads a lot like Morph. I can hear the Morph voice in my head from the animated series with how he talks and how casual he is with Professor X and a little bit more lighthearted and joking. I feel like you should do uh, Morph's like signature laugh. No, that's so too hard. That. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to the animated series shortly. Uh, this scene, uh, very very quickly, in John Byrne's X-Men The Hidden Years, number eight, we get to see this uh, this scene reflected on again. And in this scene, we see Changeling say, I'm a walking dead man, full up with cancer. The docs say I only got a couple months to live. Uh, and then we also see Xavier brings Jean Grey in on the secret here. So Jean Grey knew that Changeling was going to pose as Professor X. And it seems to be... The plan is Changeling will pose as Xavier until the Xenox thing is handled, and then Xavier will retake his his normal spot. But this shit with Grotesque went down, and uh, and he died, so it kind of ruined everything. I'm not exactly sure how all this is put together, but this is a quick, clever way to keep Xavier alive. And uh, there's a there's that's kind of it. <laughs> That's kind of all we get for the changeling for the most yep. part. Uh, what are your what are your thoughts on this guy? This guy going to Xavier saying, I've got cancer. Give me something worthwhile to do. I think so. I think, I mean, you we see at the end of the whole um, factor three thing, he's starting to rethink things and rethink how, you know, he's doing things. And he spent some time with Professor X and it was enough to slap him, but maybe he realized he wasn't a bad guy and the X-Men weren't bad people and there was more worse ways to go. So, yeah, he uh, he is the X Men's first casualty. That's true. This is before, even before Thunderbird. He yeah, Thunderbird. he is the guy that sacrificed his life and was buried in an unmarked grave. And I don't know that he's ever been given the right credit for that. The X Men have grieved Thunderbird over the years, who of course now is back. Uh, but that's it. That's all we have of him, basically. Yeah. Until. Until. Da, na, 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 na. So John Byrne did Sensational She-Hulk in uh, the late oh, yeah. early 90s. And he made a pledge, is my understanding, that he would not create any new villains, but instead would use all of Marvel's worst villains and kind of make them great. So there's characters like Sprague the Living Hill and Stiltman that show up in this series. <laughs> Uh, and uh, we see Changeling, Changeling briefly in Sensational She-Hulk number 34 and 35. Tell us about this story, if we can even count this as a Changeling appearance. Eh, I think it counts. So, uh, what's his name? Black Talon. Is Black Talon a mutant? Or... No, Black Talon or... is like a like a mystic zombie guy. Uh, he, he uses potions and voodoo and creates zombies mostly. Yeah. So this is pre-Necrotia, I guess. But um, anyway, he takes four classic bad X-Men villains and 
basically brings them back in zombie form and puts them in classic uh, original X-Men costumes and has them go after She-Hulk. So the four, uh, I don't even know who Scaleface is. I don't know who the Black Bishop is. We know Jack of Diamonds because we've been talking about him on the podcast late recently with um, uh, with Scott's background. And then Changeling, he resurrects Changeling. And but, uh, and Jack of Diamonds, by the way, uh, in the new X-Men Legends series that just came out, volume two, issue number one, written by Roy Thomas. It's a story told about Wolverine right before he joins the X-Men. And Jack of Diamonds is in it. He brings back <laughs> this character. Uh, so interesting. Just kind of funny side note. Scaleface is like a chick that can turn into like a, a sewer dragon monster. She's from uh, X-Factor number 11. Uh, she's only appears once and she's killed. So these are like super obscure characters that that Vern is using here. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. Um, at any rate, like uh, I haven't read them. I just read a quick summary. But yeah, she's fighting these. They call themselves the Exhumed, which I thought was kind of funny. But anyway, um, yeah, the Changeling's like, no, I died heroically. I'm not going to be a villain again. I'm not going to fight She-Hulk. So he actually turns and uh helps her i guess she he turns into elvis and an elvis impersonator and tips off the cops and then goes his merry zombie way he's like nope i'm not i i I finally made up for my wrong and i'm not gonna undo that so i'm helping you but anyway that's it that's the whole story what do you think (laughs) (laughs) fantastic especially since she hulk's on now and i'm in a she hulk kick again it's uh, it's uh, it's kind of a meh story for me. I like some of Burn She-Hulk. It makes me laugh out loud. But this, he just had this pun, the exhumed, and he just needed to use it, and it's fine. Scaleface comes back in Necrotia, by the way, when Celine oh, really? more zombies. This woman has more appearances as a zombie than she does as a living dude. <laughs> um, we also get Changeling referenced in Excalibur, The Possession Number 1, which weirdly was released the same year, written by Michael Higgins. Uh, the premise here is that Changeling's ghost has gotten like bitter. He's mad at Xavier, and he's trying to find a form that he can possess to get revenge. Uh, so he tries to take over Megan, but she's too strong, and he she like tosses him out. Uh, but then you also learn that this actually wasn't Changeling. It was like Merlin with a Y, M E R L Y N, like the wizard foe of Excalibur. Wizard was like with a using, <laughs> was using like his magic to make them think it's Changeling. It's really, it's really fucking stupid. Uh, the the issue's fine, but the use of Changeling here was completely unnecessary. I don't, uh, did you have a chance to look at this issue? It's really. No. It's super obscure. Um, We also see Changeling like very briefly in a flashback in uh, Thunderbolts number 33, where Kurt Busiek's telling Ogre's story or picking Ogre up again. And we like see Changeling referenced in a factor three flashback, but that's pretty much it. That's it for this guy. Uh, There's not a lot to discover. His most of his motivation is entirely related to, I tried to conquer the world my boss was an alien. I got cancer, then I died. And then also I was an Elvis impersonator as a zombie for a few seconds. Uh, what are your thoughts and impressions on him? I don't know. I, I think it's a good little, I mean, I wish it was more fleshed out cycle for him. He's like, yeah, I fucked up. I 
tried to take over the world. I'm going to do some right. And then I died. And I was a zombie. And I wasn't a ghost. I want to like him, but there's just nothing much to like except his yeah. I just love his hat. It's the stupidest 60s thing ever. He's the, the dumbest part of anything Marvel did in the 60s just because of that hat. <laughs> it's, it's the number one worst. Paper mache changeling hat. That's going to be my comic con goal. Now on Krakoa, there have been there's been the ability for mutants to be resurrected, but only after a certain point. But more recently, in like uh, the the Trial of Magneto series that Leah Williams wrote, uh, we learned that there's a thing called the Waiting Room, which is now a space where any mutant who has died across history. It's kind of like a purgatory where they can re-enter life and be resurrected if they choose. I'm oversimplifying here, but that's kind of how it works. And there is a mention in X-Force Volume 4, Number 2, written by Ben Percy in 2019, uh, uh, where we see an image of Changeling in a crowd. It looks like Changeling, but it's never clearly identified. Uh, but then later there's another appearance where Professor X says, after the waiting room has been established, he says, we now have a way to reach dead mutants from before Cerebro achieved full resurrection functionality, Thunderbird, for instance, or poor Changeling. And Thunderbird has been resurrected. So far as we know, Changeling has not. Uh, that's it. That's all. That's all there is. That's all she wrote. Uh, how, how do you feel? He's, he's a little sad. Oh, I want more. Well, I'm sure they'll bring him back. I'm sure they, I mean, if they mentioned him by name in that Thunderbird or poor Changeling, I'm sure they'll touch upon it. Nobody cares about this guy. I do now. I, I, I'm curious about him, but I don't care about him. Yeah. Uh, but people do care about Morph. Does that mean it's Morphin time? Yes, let's talk about Morph. So uh, Marvel had their infamous animated series in the 90s. Uh, they wanted a quick character that they could kind of throw away and kill to show that the Sentinels were a big deal. So they and... went to Marvel Records and said, who are good quick characters that we wouldn't have killed? And they're like, oh, we'll pick this guy. I think they considered Thunderbird, but like maybe killing a Native American in the first episode is not a great plan. Yeah, let's pick another random white guy. And then they don't call him Changeling. I think there was some copyright issues or like some trademark issues. Anyway, they called this guy Morph and he really has nothing to do with the comics character except he can change shape. Uh, tell us about Morph. Morph's fun. I remember like even though he was only in what a handful of episodes, like I like his his death was tragic and his mind control and coming back from the dead and you know, how he affected Wolverine. Like, it, I don't know. He was a good, um, like, Wolverine was a great straight man for him. Like, he was one of the few things that Wolverine actually got emotion about until it starts screaming about Gene constantly. Morph! Morph! Just lays in bed with a picture of Morph, you know? And, uh, no, I thought it was, I thought it was good. I remember as a kid just being affected by his death. They did a good job. Morph, uh, Morph has this signature way of talking, and he's playing pricks like he's a uh, he's just changing shape. He turns into Jubilee, and then Professor X, and then Storm, and then Rogue, and then he's like eating popcorn and watching TV oh. by himself. Like, eh, 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 so funny. What'd you say? And changing into everyone who sees on TV, flipping channels. 
And Jubilee's yeah. like, no, ah. And then the Sentinels attack, and he Cyclops has to make a call to leave him behind, and he dies. Uh, no, no, uh, Mike came over a couple weeks ago with my husband, Mike, and my friend, Mike, and I all got high and watched all of Morph's appearances <laughs> in X-Men the Animated Series. Uh, is it okay that I just said we got high? You're all right with that? Totally, I don't care. <laughs> And uh, that that was fun. Uh, he comes back a while later. You learn Mr. Sinister saved him and brainwashed him and made him a bad guy. And then he's like a little vigilante for a minute. And, like, I don't know. What happens to Morph in the cartoon? Well, basically, just Wolverine gets emotional again and runs after him. He's got some kind of mind control chip in his brain that Sinister is affecting still. And he's trying to get over that. And Wolverine is from him and wolverine's chasing him through the woods and morph's like leave me alone chases him through the sewers like you do uh and he comes back a couple times but not a lot happens no they are getting ready to revive uh, bo Miles team is reviving x-men the animated series right. and they're bringing morph back but as the uh, is apocalypse version yeah yeah as the as the white pasty face version <laughs> with, the, with the yellow magneto cape and the and all that stuff so there is a there's a thing called the edge of apocalypse where xavier gets murdered in the past and magneto now forms the x-men and the team is completely different and one of the main members of the team is morph who is changeling they even comment in the age of apocalypse like do you remember that old stupid fucking hat you used to wear <laughs> <laughs> and uh he is distinctively different from the changeling we know describe this version of morph for us He's more like Elastic Man or Plastic Man. Like he's more fluid. He can stretch more. He can, you know, shape change, obviously. But yeah, definitely comic relief. Definitely a little bit crazy. Um, you need comic relief in the Age of Apocalypse. And they went with him. No, I remember loving him in Age of Apocalypse when I read that one was coming out. Um, and yeah, and then I guess they continued that with exiles they brought that version of the character back in so uh, yeah. exiles is another title that judd winnick uh, introduced and he used variants of some of the original x-men in a reality hopping team and it was this version where we actually get a bit of backstory so there's another version of morph on this team again he's the he's the white plastic man kind of guy when i say white i don't mean caucasian it's like he's oh. made of it's like, like he's, he's, it's like he's made out of silly putty. He's war. He's warlock. He's a Looney Tune. He yeah. just is like morphing into all these different shapes all the time. Uh, but uh, we get he's he's seen like over a hundred times this version of Morph, and uh, Tony Bedard in uh, in Exiles eighty gives us a little bit more of his story. We learn that his real name is Kevin Sidney, which may be the real name of our Changeling, but we don't know. Uh, here's his part of his narrative from Exiles number 80. And again, this is an alternate reality version. But he says, I was born with full-blown mutant powers, an eight-pound lump of white goo that cried like a baby and flowed like mercury. I figured out as a toddler that my parents were happier if I kept a normal human shape. And I'm nothing if not eager to please. By the time I started school, I'd perfected the all-American boy-next-door look. But at home, alone with my friends, I'd relax and just be me. I wasn't a phony or ashamed of who I was, I was simply less awkward that way. I had a knack for being what everyone wanted. 
everything came easy for me, school, sports, friends. And then mom died of lung cancer when I was 13. There was nothing easy about that. It broke dad. He just got so serious. And the harder I tried to cheer him up, the more he withdrew. My clowning around finally got so over the top that dad packed me off to boarding school. At least he picked the right one. Years later, I actually earned a master's in computer engineering at Xavier's. Sometimes people forget that they really are a school. I also earned a uniform and a code name, Morph, leader of Xavier's junior super team, the New Mutants. Now those kids appreciated a good laugh. Next, I graduated to full-fledged X-Men status. I was even a beloved member of the Avengers. I got more fan mail than Captain America. All of it came so easy until the day I got drafted into an alternate universe repair squad called the Exiles, and nothing's been easy ever since. Uh, so this version of Morph from a different reality had a very happy childhood, like a long stay with the New Mutants, the X-Men, and then the, uh, the Avengers. He's a hero. He's a completely different guy. And his name is Kevin Sidney. Uh, have you read much Exiles? What are your thoughts on this version? I never read Exiles. Like, I, it, I, I don't know. I was, it was in that weird late 90s kind of where X-Men was, I was kind of gave X-Men a break at this point because it was too much and not that great. But yeah, I was familiar that Morph was in there and I loved Blink from uh, Age of Apocalypse as well. And I realized she was in there, but I just never really gave it a shot, even though like I do remember love, loving Judd Winnick and I love um, uh, What's His Bucket. Who's the other author that you mentioned? Oh, I think I just mentioned. Oh, 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 uh, who wrote the later title? Tony, Tony, yeah. Be Tony. Yeah, Tony Stard. I remember reading a lot of his DC stuff and loving him. And I was surprised when I read it in the notes here that he was writing that as well. So I kind of want to go back and give it another other shot because I like all the people involved and I like the characters and I hear it's got like a cult following like a lot of people are very fond of Exiles. It's a great series especially kind of the first 25 issues it went on for a long time uh it went through a lot of changes but it's good uh did you did you read Mutant X? Uh that's another one I didn't read either I think I was actually on my mission when that started coming out I was off in a foreign land doing Mormon things um <laughs> uh so yeah I, I missed that whole run i think it started when i was gone and ended right when i got back so i just it just never like took off my brain i never noticed it mutant x is a universe where havoc goes and occupies a version of himself in another reality and he's on a team called the six and these are like this is like a universe where what if cyclops wasn't around mm -hmm. uh havoc is married to madeline Pryor and on their team is like versions of Angel and Beast and Storm, but they're all like really that dark. Comes in the last few years, if I remember right. Right. That's a, that's a, that's a different that's one. A different Bloodstorm. Okay. Yeah, there's a Vampire Storm and there's another Vampire Storm later. Uh, but Exiles. One of the things I really loved is it takes a lot of the old X Men characters that never got developed. It gives us a version of like Thunderbird, who was mutated by Apocalypse. And like um, Mimic, Mimic is one of the main members of the team. And they use Morph, who's from Changeling. It's almost like it takes the 60s characters that never got a chance to shine. Uh, and it's, it's good. It's a really good title. And there's a lot of mystery. It's like slowly playing out the mystery over time. Hmm. Um, some handbooks have called our Changeling Kevin Sidney, which, uh, which could be considered canon in that we do have a real name now, but uh, there's really very little comparison between ours and theirs. Yeah. We, so we have, we have our Changeling, Animated Series, Exiles, and Age of Apocalypse, who are kind of four versions of the same character. And the latter three, we have a really funny guy 
who's a very effective fighter. But the one we get in the 60s comics is not that character. We don't really get much chance. He just screams a lot. So I thought that was it. But I recently learned while preparing this podcast, and I'm the Marvel Handbook guy, so I know a lot of shit, but I'd never heard of this. There was a book published in the year 2000 called X-Men Legends, not to be confused with the series of flashback stories we've gotten in recent years. Uh, It is a series of anthology books written by different people, just kind of highlighting different eras of X-Men history. There's a multiple man story. There's a Callisto story. uh, And there's a Changeling story. And it's written by by, uh, Keith R.A. DeCandido. I'm totally going to try to interview. I'm Right. Total, well, he's he's a really prominent novelist, um, but I'm going to totally try to interview Keith about this on my podcast one day. We'll try. Uh, but we're given a lot of context for Changeling. Uh, Duven, if you want, are you in the mood for some story time? And I will read story time. Story. Yeah. Where's my cookies? <laughs> so this is going to take like 20 minutes to read, um, but it's good. It, it gives us everything we want on this character. And I do think that this book could easily be considered canon. I don't know that it is, but there is nothing in this story that does not yeah. fit. No one else has done anything with him, so we'll take what we can get. So Yeah. And this story would have come out after the animated series. Uh, so it's after the morph character was being used, which is maybe why the popularity of that character might have inspired this story for Keith to write. But it's it's pretty entertaining. So it's uh, it's called The Diary of a False Man. Uh, you ready? Yep. I'm going to stop every once in a while and ask for your ideas. Okay. Professor Xavier was dead. That at least was what Jean Grey had to pretend was the case. She couldn't imagine how things had gone so wrong. The man they had buried was not truly Charles Charles Francis Xavier, PhD, world-renowned geneticist, headmaster of Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters, and more secretly, powerful telepath and mentor to the team of teenage superheroes, the X-Men. Xavier was, in fact, presently in a sealed bunker beneath the school's grounds, preparing for an invasion by an alien race known as the Xenox. Jean Grey was the only one of the X-Men who knew that he wasn't really dead, but she could not reveal the truth to anyone. After she and her four teammates, Scott Summers, Hank McCoy, Bobby Drake, and Warren Worthington III, had returned from the funeral to the mansion that had housed the school, they played the message that Xavier, in quotes, had left for them in the event that he was killed. Jean pretended to be surprised by it, even though she knew that the professor recorded such messages before any kind of mission. He was always prepared for the eventuality of his own death. The man who took his place had felt obligated to do the same. To Jean's horror, she realized she didn't even know the man's real name. He had been called the Changeling, and he first encountered the X-Men as the second in command of the terrorist organization Factor 3. In the end, though, he had helped the X-Men defeat Factor 3's so-called mutant master, Then, in secret, he had taken the place of Professor Xavier. Just a few days ago, he died fighting grotesque, a sacrifice that saved billions of lives. The recording of The Changeling as Xavier included a warning that Magneto might return soon, as indeed he had days earlier, facing the Avengers, and then came to an end with the words, And now farewell, my X-Men, the torch has been passed, and I know you shall be worthy of it. So if this is canon, by the way, where the X-Men are going and watching Xavier's will, that was actually Changeling doing that whole performance, <laughs> which is something Probably we didn't get in the comments. There's no TV. There's just a cardboard box there, and he's sitting in there talking. <laughs> 
The tears that ran down Jean's cheeks had dampened her, dampened her yellow face mask. They were genuine as she cried. No, no, that can't be the end. It can't. And the words were not lies, though the other X-Men probably took as much different meaning from them. The careful plan that she, the professor, and Changeling had worked out had not taken the latter's death into account as a possibility. It won't be, it won't be, Jean, Hank said, tears also staining his mask, as the professor himself recognized. Excuse me. As the professor himself now recognized, we must now carry on. We must make a new beginning. Hank McCoy was right, of course. He usually was. <laughs> she squeezed her teammate's oversized hand and smiled. Then she turned to their team leader and also the man she loved, though she never dared to say so. Scott, if it's okay, I'd like, I'd like to be the one to go through professor's things and pack them up. Of course, Gene, Scott said stoically. You knew him longer than any of us. She couldn't read his face. That was nigh impossible at the best of times, especially with the ruby quartz glasses that completely covered his eyes, but she didn't need to. She could feel his grief and pain, and she could feel that he was trying desperately to shut those feelings out, to carry on as leader of the X-Men and not allow the grief to cripple him, especially with Magneto on the loose again. So having someone else do the onerous task of sorting through Xavier's effects would be fine with the X-Men's field leader. Besides which, Scott spoke the truth. Unlike the boys who were recruited to the X-Men out of high school, Jean first met Charles Xavier when she was 10 years old. Her best friend Annie Richardson had been run over by a car, and Jean had felt Annie die in her mind. The professor had brought her out of the ensuing depression telepathically, and also closed off her psionic abilities until she was ready to deal with them. That time had come just before Xavier had been replaced by the changeling. Removing her mask, she went upstairs to the professor's study. His papers and computer files were very well organized. Anything personal she put in a separate file to be placed in storage, perhaps in the attic. The school paperwork would also have to be dealt with, though Jean had no idea by whom. As she went through a pile of papers, files, books, she realized that she probably needed to alert the school's lawyer, Michael Ramsey, about the situation. Or maybe she thought, I can just not say anything. Then she chastised herself. Right, Jean. Just hope Mr. Ramsey doesn't notice that his client is dead until he comes back from the dead in a few months. That'll work. Then there was all the domestic staff, all the paperwork related to the running of the school that she didn't even pretend to understand. Who was going to deal with all that? Xavier's only family was a half-brother who despised him. Juggernaut! Perhaps Mr. Ramsey could deal with it, but how could she even explain the situation to him? Clenching her fist, she resisted the urge to pound on the desk. This wasn't how things were supposed to go. The plan was that Changeling would pretend to be Xavier for a few months, then Xavier would resurface from the bunker, they'd stop the Xenox, and the Changeling would go on with his life, having done something to help the world that he, as a member of Factor 3, had almost destroyed. When Jean, the professor, and the changeling had discussed and planned this, it had all seemed so sensible. Had it, Jean? <laughs> and during those first weeks, it went really well. But then the shape changer had to go and get himself killed. And Xavier was now in the bunker, completely unreachable, leaving Jean alone. The professor had made it clear that until he was ready, he could not leave the bunker. To emphasize the point, he coded the lock so that it could only be open from the inside. Even if she wanted to, Jean could not reach Xavier until he chose to come out. She had So she had to maintain the charade and pretend that Charles Xavier was dead. Suddenly, she felt less like the mature woman that valued the, the valued teammate, the person in whom the professor had placed his trust, and a lot more like the frightened 18-year-old girl she really was. She didn't know what to do, and the one man who could help her couldn't be reached. At that moment, she hated the changeling. Hated him for putting her in this position. Hated him for dying when she needed him to be alive. 
Maybe I should just tell the boys everything. They'll understand. Maybe we can break into the bunker and get the professor out. Bobby could freeze the lock, or maybe Scott could blast it down, or suddenly she broke into tears. I can't handle this. She didn't care that the professor had been explicit in his instructions. She didn't care that he'd locked the bunker. She didn't care about how important it was that he be prepared for the Xenox's eventual arrival. She just wanted the professor back to make it all better. After a minute, she composed herself. She was almost done going through the pile. She would finish what she started, then go tell Scott and the others the truth. They deserved that. The world could go to hell for all she cared. She would not carry this burden alone. The last item in the pile was a book that Jean recognized as the professor's journal. She opened it to the back. Although she had no intention of reading it, she was curious as to when he put the last, when he last put in an entry. To her surprise, the last entry was dated only five days previous, the morning that the changeling had died. Flipping through the pages, she realized that he had maintained the journal. His skills as a forger, she realized, were as good as he had boasted weeks earlier. Skimming through it, Jean could not tell where the professor's handwriting ended and the changelings began. Closing the journal, she placed it in a box she'd labeled personal. Then she used her telekinesis to lift some of the administrative files into the air and tried to open one of the file cabinet drawers the same way, but the drawer wouldn't budge. At first, Jean thought it was because she was splitting her concentration between the drawer and the files, but she soon realized that the drawer was physically stuck. Placing the files back on the desk, she concentrated harder on the drawer. She mentally felt something physically blocking her tracks. Gently removing the object, she then shook the drawer all the way out and moved the files into it. Then she pulled out the item that had been blocking it. It was a small book. The cover had a lovely marble paper design, but no text. After replacing the drawer, she opened the book. The cream-colored pages had text written in the very neat handwriting with what seemed to be a simple ballpoint pen. Another journal of Professor X's, she wondered, but no, the handwriting was different. She read the first page. Okay, so before I continue, tell me your thoughts on this story as it's presented. It's setting it right into the continuity yeah. after the Frankenstein and grotesque battles, right when they heard the will. If you go back and read the 60s comics, this fits right in. Tell me your thoughts here so far. I like I like Gene's uh, frustration, carrying the secret, not knowing what to do because that wasn't part of the plans. Nobody thought of that eventuality that Professor X would die, you know, just trying to somehow make Professor X come back and make it all better. But there's no way of doing that without spoiling the secret. No, I, I dig it. I dig what she's going through. And also, fuck you, Xavier, for leaving this 18 year old yeah. girl with your secrets. Yeah. Yeah, you know, well, it's just, you know, par for the course for Professor X. So then in this story, she has found the Changeling's journal, which is a brilliant way to give us this character. Mm -hmm. Dear Diary. Really? So here's I found a wonderful hat today. <laughs> we'll get to that. So <laughs> I love, I really love this story. It, it gives me a reason to care about this character. So yeah. she reads the first page of the journal. It says, I've had many names in my life. Charles Sage. Werner Ryman, Jack Bolton, John Askegren, Francisco Zarelli, Martina Johansson, and most recently, Charles Xavier. But there's a difference with that last one. The guy who was born with it is still using it. He asked me to take his place, to become him while he went off to do something else. Part of being Charles Xavier is to keep a journal. Keeping his has made me decide to keep one of my own. I don't have long for this world. The doctor said the cancer would take me in six to nine months, so I figured I should leave some kind of legacy, especially since 
If everything goes the way it's supposed to, only two people are going to know what I did at the end, Xavier himself and Jean Grey. Hell, only they and the X-Men and a few others are even going to know who I am. So I figure Xavier or Gray will someday read this journal and then people will know just who this guy was. Thoughts? No, continue. Already great, right? Like it gives yeah. some stuff. Yeah. Gene felt her jaw fall open. He had cancer. He only had a few months to live. That explained why the changeling had kept asking Xavier, you won't be down for more than six months, right? The professor had assured him that he wouldn't. It also explained something that hadn't made any sense to Gene at the time. As he lay dying in Warren's arms, the changeling had said he was dying of, quote, of an illness even I could not cure. At the time, Scott had thought that was why the professor had been pushing the X-Men so hard, because he needed to get the training in before he died. In fact, the changeling was simply following Xavier's instructions to work the X-Men as hard as possible in preparation for the Xenox invasion. Instead, the changeling let them believe that Xavier was dying in any case. Perhaps it was to take the sting out of his death at the hands of Grotesque, the knowledge that he would have died here long, or perhaps it was simply to, uh, excuse me, simply so someone would know he was dying of cancer. Jean would never be sure. She had closed her mind off from the changelings when he died. She only recently started using her telepathic powers. She didn't think she could handle feeling someone die in her head again. I shouldn't read this, she thought. It's his private diary. Besides, I have to go tell the boys the truth but he'd intended it for it to be found after he died. Just because that death happened several months ahead of schedule didn't change the intent. And suddenly she was consumed with a great desire to put off telling her teammates the truth. Not the day of the funeral, she rationalized. Give it a day or two. She sat down in one of the leather guest chairs. The wheelchair-bound Xavier had never placed a chair beside the, behind the desk itself, of course, and turned to the second page. August 19th, 11.45 p.m. It's pretty late. Most of the X-Men have gone to bed, exhausted after the battle with the Frankenstein monster, and Xavier <laughs> has locked himself in his bunker. For the last week or two, Xavier and I have been acting as the X-Men's mentor. He was the one who found that the Frankenstein monster was real, which threw me for a loop, I don't mind saying. I was the one who told the X-Men about the mission initially, but he was the one who stopped the monster and wiped that boat crew's memory of the incident. That was his way of easing the transition, having each of us play the role of Xavier alternately. It seems to have worked, and now he's gone down in his bunker, leaving me with the X-Men. Since I didn't go on the mission to stop the Frankenstein, and Frankenstein android, I'm not as exhausted as the kids are, so I figured I'd start this journal for real. Begin at the beginning, the Queen of Hearts said in Alice in Wonderland, and that's probably where it makes the most sense. For me, the beginning was St. Julian's Orphanage for Boys in Central City, California, or as I like to call it, hell. My first memory is getting beaten up by Johnny Brill, one of the older boys. So are most of the other memories. I was a scrawny, sickly, ugly little kid. I didn't have a real name. The nuns had listed me as Charles Sage, but they made that name up. When I was older, I broke into St. Julian's records and found that I'd been left at the orphanage as an infant with a note saying, and I quote, take care of the boy, T-A-K-K-A-R-E. All I know about my parents is that they didn't want me and they couldn't spell. But that came later, after puberty. Before that, I was just Johnny's designated victim. That changed one night when I was 14. I had a weird dream, then I woke up. I went to the bathroom and some tall muscular kid with a good looking face stared back at me in the mirror. 
took me a few minutes to realize it was me. It took me half a day to realize I could change myself back, but I didn't. To this day, I've never gone back to looking like what I looked like before. Why should I? The scrawny, ugly, sickly kid that the nurses called Charles Sage was a miserable little twerp whose main purpose in life was to be Johnny Brill's punching bag. I didn't need to be him anymore. The nuns didn't recognize me, assumed I was a trespasser and threw me out. At first I thought everything would be great, freedom away from Johnny and the nuns. What I forgot is that St. Julian's, whatever its flaws, and believe me, it had plenty, also fed me three squares a day and put a roof over my head. I was in Southern California, so sleeping outside wasn't as much a chore as it might have been, but I was still a 14-year-old kid with the clothes on my back and not a hell of a lot else. I noticed the beggars in the street. I started watching them and realized that one, the, excuse me, and realized the ones that looked crummy but not really awful were the ones who did best. So I changed to look like one of those and panhandled for a few days. That at least got me enough to buy some lousy food. Then I went back to St. Julian's. I knew my way around the place. Years of hiding from bullies had taught me all the hidey holes and I knew the security routine. So breaking in proved pretty easy. That was when I read my file. And then I went after Johnny and I beat the holy crap out of him. It was the greatest moment of my life up to that point. Pathetic. All I'd live for was to do to Johnny what he'd been doing to me for 10 years. But when I was done, I didn't know what else to do. I didn't even know who or what to be. All I'd known was that orphanage, that and panhandling. So I went back to the street and joined the ever-growing ranks of the homeless. Then Werner Ryman came along. Werner was a retired guy who apparently was bored, so he'd wander out and check on the homeless. He didn't want to give them any money. He just wanted to lecture them on how they should make something of their lives, like he did. Worked at Consolidated for 47 years, took a job right out of high school, retired at 65, made me a nice little nest egg, never heard me begging for no handout, no siree Bob. He said that all the time. For the better part of a week, I heard him use this spiel on various homeless, homeless guys. When he tried it on me, I told him to go away. It was easy for him to say, get a job. He had a name. He had an identity. All I had was a sickly kid named Charles Sage that I swore never to be again. That left me with nothing. Undaunted, Werner went to bother the colonel. He wasn't really a colonel, of course, but he did serve in the army. I got a look at his dog tags once when he was sleeping. He'd been a corporal. What war he served in changed depending on the time of day, and he had so much hair on his head and face that you couldn't tell what his age was. Nobody messed with the colonel for two reasons. One was that he carried a pistol. The other was that he was nutty as a fruitcake. But nobody told Werner Ryman either of those things, so old Werner was pretty surprised when the colonel shot him. Realizing what he'd done, the colonel ran off. So did the other homeless guys. I didn't. What I was missing was a name, an identity. Werner Ryman had both, but he wasn't going to need them much longer. As the life bled out of Werner, I removed his clothes. I studied his face and his skin tone, looked for birthmarks, everything. It didn't take long since I have a photographic memory, or at least I have since the day I discovered my powers. I'm not sure how, uh, excuse me, I'm not sure now if it's part of my mutant abilities, or if I just don't want to remember the days before I stopped being Charles Sage. Ultimately, it doesn't matter. One look up and down at Werner Ryman's body was enough for me to remember every detail of it. Then I became him. I now had his face, his ID his wallet, his credit cards, his car keys, and, quote, his nice little nest egg. 
I didn't have his fingerprints. I can't manage that. But that never turned out to be an issue. Werner Ryman was my ticket off the street. Getting tired, going in to get some sleep. I'm surprised at how good it feels to get all this down. Been a while since I even thought about life in Central City. So much has happened since then. I'll probably do more tomorrow. Tell me your thoughts on this journal entry, this origin story we get from Changeling. Interesting. I'm digging it. I like how he kind of just figured out a way to assume some guy and took the opportunity. You can see where he gets a little bit of anger out of the bullying and the living on the streets and, you know, living in an orphanage and being unwanted. So you can see maybe why he would join forces with the mutant master later on, someone who wanted him and accepted him. But yeah, no, I'm digging where this is going. He's a nobody and his power is the only thing that makes him special. And also he's a survivor. He observes, he's smart, he watches. Uh, this is a 14 year old kid so far uh, at yeah. this point in this. I think it's really, really, when I was reading this the first time, I was like, holy shit, this is a character I like. <laughs> Should I continue? Please do. August 20th, 7.30 p.m. Pretty routine day today. Ran the X-Men through a training session, then through a more traditional day in the classroom. Good thing Xavier prepared detailed lesson plans since teaching is a bit out of my league. I had thought Xavier's school for gifted youngsters was just a front, but this place really is a school and these five kids are gifted, especially McCoy. If he has any brains and he's got plenty, he'll get out of the hero racket and become a scientist or something. He's got the talent. Anyhow, I just updated Xavier's journal and I figured I'd do it for mine also. I left off at Werner Ryman yesterday. Werner's driver's license had his address, so I went there, changed into less bloody clothes, and then started to become Werner. The hardest part at first was duplicating his handwriting. After all, having his credit cards wouldn't do any good if I couldn't sign his name. Though the nuns would always give me bad penmanship marks, I was always good at copying things. Whenever they'd given us tracing paper and a drawing and told us to reproduce it on the paper, I had never bothered putting the tracing paper on the picture. I just looked at it and copied it over, and I always did better than the other kids. The other kids, goaded by Johnny, usually use that as another excuse to beat me up, of course. So it didn't take long to hone my talent for forgery. I always wondered about that. Was the affinity for forgery a byproduct of the fact that I was a shape changer? Did my ability to copy things as a little kid have some kind of effect on what my mutant power would be? Or was it a part of the telepathic talent I didn't even know I had until Xavier? gray and I concocted this plan. I wondered the same thing about being eidetic, for that matter. Yeah, I know it's all philosophical and you can't answer it, but hell, it's my journal. If you can't be philosophical in your own journal, when can you be? Anyway, it took a couple months, but I finally got Werner's handwriting down. Luckily, Werner was single, retired, and weird. He had a couple of relatives, but they didn't call him that often, and I blew them off. They told me I was acting immature, which in retrospect was absolutely true. I mean, I was a 14-year-old kid passing myself off as 65. Werner was cranky. I was whiny. People didn't notice the difference. So now I had some money, a home, an identity. I was bored to tears. The problem was that Werner's nice little nest egg was fine for an old man, but it wasn't enough for a teenager who'd never had anything. One day, I came up with an idea on the spur of a moment. I'd gone to the corner to pick up a corner deli to pick up a sandwich. As I was paying, I heard the owner in the back telling one of the kids who worked there, "Remember, Marty, come back at eleven to take uh, to take excuse me to take the till to the bank. 
That's 11, not a quarter after or half past, 11. I followed Marty for about eight blocks after he left, making sure I knew his facial features and the clothes he was wearing. Then I went back to the store right at 11, having changed myself to be Marty. There was no sign of the genuine article. I figured from his conversation that he was always late. Sure enough, the owner made some noise about being stunned that I was on time for a change, gave me a canvas bag full of money, and I left. It wasn't much money, a couple hundred or so, but it was a start. By the time I hit my 18th birthday, I'd amassed a ton of cash. I was bored to tears, again. You see, once I got the hang of it, using my powers to be a thief got boring. I mean, it was too easy. Also, honestly, I was really starting to hate being Werner Ryman. So I started doing other forging. God knows there was a market for it. And I never did two jobs with the same face. And I never used Werner's face for any of them. This was a good thing, as I didn't do such a great job covering my tracks in the beginning. There were probably about 12 APBs for guys fitting my description, quote. Luckily, these guys would never be found. I also taught myself to use computers. By the time I hit 19, I'd slowly created enough documentation, both physically and online, to establish another identity. This was a young, good-looking guy of 30 named Jack Bolton. I slowly drained Werner's, Werner's bank accounts and deposited it all into one I created for Jack and moved all my stuff to an apartment in the upscale part of Central City. There I pretended to be a neighbor of Werner's and called his cousin Myrtle, saying nobody had seen Werner in days and he left the TV on really loud. Then I turned the TV on really loud, left Werner's apartment and never came back. As Jack, I invested some money and I lucked out. A couple of investments turned out great and I was suddenly rolling in it, but I was still bored. I kept Jack around for whenever I felt like hobnobbing with the rich and stupid, but I went ahead and created a few more identities. Master Forger John Askegren, Mob Enforcer Francisco Zarelli, even a female pool hustler named Martina Johansson. I dropped Askegren when the, heart, uh, when the heat was on after an insurance scam, but the other two worked just fine. Not that I needed the money, but breaking up the routine, one day forging, one day hustling pool, one day beating up store owners, one day having lunch with my stockbroker, kept the boredom from setting in. Fire alarm just went off. Better go check it out. I'll do more tomorrow. Jean actually laughed out loud at that. She remembered that night. Warren had been making one of his periodic and laughable attempts at cooking. The result, as usual, was inedibly burned food. The fire alarm going off and the X-Men assembling in the kitchen ready to face some menace or another and being confronted with a contrite Warren and ruined pots. And the changeling had come down and given Warren a stern talking to that could just as easily have come from the professor himself. He was good at what he did, Jean thought. Maybe too good, she added, thinking of Johnny Brill and Werner Ryman, not to mention Marty, that poor, poor store clerk who was probably blamed for the theft of the till. To her surprise, the next entry was dated two weeks later. So let's pause again. What do you learn about changeling as we read through this? Um, no, I mean, I'd do the same. <laughs> if I was a 14-year-old kid who's living on the streets, I'd figure out a way to eat. And yeah, I mean, interesting that he's always bored, you know? He doesn't have but, a family. He doesn't have friends. Uh, There's no purpose. He's not he's, going to school. He's just amassing money, buying stuff, you know, stealing stuff and just bored, you know? But he's also smart and careful. Yeah. He teaches himself forgery. He teaches himself how to create identities. When something is too hot, he backs off and goes another yep. direction. It makes me think of like when Copycat was trying to be Domino. Oh, or like, 
Yeah. yeah, we forgot. And then uh, when Mystique was like Mallory Brickman, the senator's wife, like how mm-hmm. careful they have to be, even though they're in the appearance, they don't have the memories. They have to create these identities and then be so careful and smart. It's an interesting well, thing. About yeah. Any other thoughts here? Well, I like that he's creating new people too. Like, he, so he's obviously able to not just copy what people are. He's able to create faces and create shapes. I mean, that was kind of his early on thing is he had this new shape that he just happened into that he was more confident about. You know, I I like that he's not just taking other people's forms. He's creating his own as well. Um, I think this is such a brilliant story. I'm really impressed. This is not a story that ever had to be told, but the fact that it has been is wonderful. Yeah. Uh, Okay, I'm going to continue. September 3rd, 9.20 p.m. Haven't even thought about this journal in a while. Been busy putting the X-Men through their paces. I'm actually starting to like this. I'm used to running things, but it's nice to do it from a position of retrospect instead of power or fear. When I was running the day-to-day of Factor 3, the troops followed my orders because they were afraid of me and the mutant master. But the X-Men follow Xavier's orders because they respect him and care about him and believe in him. I didn't realize just how hollow what I did for Factor 3 was until I became Xavier. And I have to say, I like this better, a lot better. Anyway, the details of my life in the last entry were starting to get dull, and you probably don't care about it. The interesting thing happened around when I hit 30. As Zarelli, I got introduced to a new bag man, Johnny Brill. So same kid from that used to beat him up. I almost didn't recognize him. It had been 15 years and his nose hadn't been set properly after I broke it way back when. So he, so it looked different. And of course his voice had changed, but he hadn't changed. He was still a bully. This really, really annoyed me. I mean, I'd gone to all the trouble to teach him a lesson 15 years earlier and he didn't even have the brains to learn it. At first I decided to try teaching him the lesson again. I had lots of ways of doing it. I could frame him for a crime. I could ruin him financially. I could destroy his marriage. I could even do all three. I had the power to do it. And that was the big thing. I realized that I had the power. So why was I wasting it on Johnny Brill? He was nothing. A stupid low-life bagman for the Central City mob. This was worth getting worked up over? He was only human. That was the kicker. He was human. I wasn't. I was better. A lot happened after that. A big four showed up in the sky on the same day that a burning man was sighted flying through the sky and a rocky monster tore up the street. Soon after, we found out that it was the Fantastic Four right before their first battle with, against the Mole Man. There was more, a big gray monster near a Southwest Air Force base, a man with long blonde hair claiming to be a Norse god guys in New York dressed like spiders and devils, and a man claiming to be the forerunner of a new race of humans taking over Cape Citadel, being stopped by a group of teenagers in matching black and yellow costumes. He called himself a mutant. Soon the news was full of people talking about mutants. I finally knew what I was. The question was what to do about it. I can sense Gray walking toward the study. Better put this away. 11.35 p.m. Gray just had some administrative stuff to take care of, and we also set up a time to work on our telepathy tomorrow. She's been fantastic. We're both new to having telepathic powers. Xavier had repressed her psi abilities when she was a kid and only took those blocks off recently. As for me, I had minor psionic talents all along. 
It helped me make my shape changing more convincing, allowing me to telepathically influence people into seeing what they expected. Xavier boosted that ability tenfold when I took over as him, but it's taken some getting used to. Gray and I have been kind of encouraging each other. Under, under, under other circumstances, I might try making a play for her. No, scratch that. She's way too young for me. I keep forgetting she's only 18 years old. She carries herself better than most women I've known, but she really is just a girl. Besides, it's patently obvious she has the hots for summers, only he's too into the brooding thing to realize it. It's getting late. I have an early session with the X-Men tomorrow. I've got to keep working them hard. We're all going to need to be in tip-top shape when the Xenox finally get here. Jean's head spun. She wasn't sure what disturbed her more, that the changeling was attracted to her, if only a little, that he thought so highly of her, or that her feelings for Scott were so transparent to him. Every time she wanted to hate the man, she found that she couldn't bring herself to do so, but every time she wanted to like him, she'd learn of another despicable act he'd performed. Okay, like that. tell me your thoughts on this whole section. I like that. I like that she's conflicted because he's a conflicting character. Like, um, I love that he's all in on training the X-Men. Like he's found a purpose in preparing them for the alien invasion. Like, so he's not just posing. He's actually getting into the role as a teacher, as a mentor and enjoying it. And this, uh, this flashback to he meets his old childhood bully mm -hmm. and realized this, this guy's nothing. I'm incredible. Yeah. It's the same thing. If you go back and read the Blob's first appearances, Blob thinks he's nothing. He puts himself in a freak show, but then he realizes he's a mutant and he's like, fuck, I'm way better than all these people. There's a, there's like a, a weirdness. Also, Changeling is 30 when the Fantastic Four yeah. We see him reacting to the idea of learning who he is. Any thoughts on that? Well, I love that he's not in a costume out there running around as a either like high-end supervillain or a superhero. He's just living, like he's just using his powers to do his thing. Like he's not getting involved in major schemes or anything like that. Yeah, he's thieving and things like that, but that's survival, you know? And he's kind of like, you know, in his point of view above kind of humanity. So, you know, he's a little, you know, it's like he's a predator among sheep almost, you know, he's doing what he needs to to survive. And although it's subtle, it's when he sees Magneto on the news the first time that he goes, oh, fuck, I'm special. Yeah, that's me. Um, I also love the telepathy thing. Like, I don't, did they talk about that at all in the comics? It uh, it kind of references that Xavier gave Changeling telepathy to be able oh, to pose so as Xavier. telepathy, same way. So in here we learn he actually had some psychic abilities that Xavier enhanced, which makes yeah. so much more sense. Yeah, so that, I mean, he could sit in for professor xavier better that way like when he doesn't have to fake having telepathy you know mm -hmm. and this whole concept of like a dying man writing in his journal is gorgeous i love this character from this book i love him i didn't care about him at all <laughs> prior to this but i love him after this uh we've got about a third left you okay yes okay let me go with the next one september 6th 8 15 p.m i was going through some old files of xavier's today found a couple of newspaper clippings. One in particular caught my eye, an old New York Daily Globe front page item saying, mutant menace, Dr. Bolivar Trask, noted scientist and researcher, warns of a mutant plot against US. I remember the first time I saw that headline. It was probably the second most important day of my life after the day I woke up with a new face when I was 14. 
While I maintained apartments for Zarelli in the Heights and Johansson in the projects, I dumped the Askegren persona at this point. I spent most of my time at Jack Bolton's large house in the central city suburbs. One night I went home to find someone in my living room. First off, just that someone was in my living room was pretty spooky since I had a state-of-the-art security system that hadn't been messed with at all. The intruder got past it without tripping it. He stood in the middle of the room. Oh, before I continue, any guesses on the intruder? It's gotta be the mutant master. Yes. He was wearing a large black billowing cloak with a hood that covered most his face. And what the hood didn't cover was taken care of by a metal mask. I basically had no idea what he looked like. Who are you? Greetings, Mr. Bolton, he said in an electronically filtered voice. Or should I say Mr. Astigrin? Perhaps Mr. Zarelli, Ms. Johansson, Mr. Ryman? Or shall I follow the lead of St. Julian's Orphanage and call you Mr. Sage? Such a multifaceted little changeling you are. So here's the uh, first and a fifth program. Suddenly I was very scared, more scared than I'd been since any time after I left the orphanage. In fact, it was the first time I'd been scared since then. There was no way anyone could connect me to all those names, one or two maybe, but not all of them. Who the hell are you? My real name is unimportant. You see, my dear changeling, while you are a mutant, I am the master of mutants, and I have a proposition for you. I didn't know what this guy could do, but I figured it was more than I could if he could break in here so easily. So I said, I'm listening. A gloved hand emerged from the folds of the cloak. It held a newspaper. Have you seen this? He asked. It was the same globe headline about Trask. No, I said. I didn't, it didn't take long to get the gist of it. Trask, an anthropologist, was claiming that mutants had a secret agenda to take over the United States and would enslave normal humans in labor camps. Sensationalist hogwash, I said, tossing the paper aside. What does it have to do with me? Oh, Trask is doing more than what you see here. The public doesn't know of it yet, but he's been developing sentinels, giant robot, robots that will seek out mutants and stop them. Another type of fear gripped me. Stop them how? And how do you know this? The same way I know who you are, changeling. I am the mutant master, and Trask's sentinels will fail. How do you know that? Because Trask is an anthropologist, not a roboticist. Which is amazing. <laughs> His sentinels are flawed. They were ineptly conceived and incom incompetently constructed. I have every faith that they will fail in their intended task. Then why show me this article, I asked. I was completely confused by the entire conversation, and I was still waiting for the proposition the mutant's master had promised. Because Trask raises an excellent point. Mutants are the next step in evolution, and by rights, we should take over the world. My proposition, changeling, is to form the very conspiracy that Trask imagines. I have already begun to construct this organization, which I have christened Factor 3, but I need a second in command, someone who can handle the day-to-day -day operations, someone who can combine his shape-shifting abilities with the resources at my disposal to seek out and recruit allies and gather information on enemies. You are ideally suited for this task. I thought about Johnny Brill. I thought about how easily I had manipulated humans to gain money and power. And yet, what kind of power was it really? I was three different false people. The mutant master was giving me an opportunity to be someone. That someone would be the changeling. 
I not only accepted the mutant master's proposition, I also offered to provide funding for factor three. He declined that saying it wasn't an issue and said, I'll be in touch. And then he just disappeared, which if nothing else explained how he got past my security system. Over the next few months, we put factor three together. I sought out and recruited a variety of mutants. These were grown men who called themselves the Vanisher, Eunice the Untouchable, the Blob, and Mastermind. I have to admit, I've never understood the need for such colorful names. I mean, yes, I call myself the Changeling, but that's due to a lack of alternatives. But when you've got a perfectly good name like Fred J. Dukes, why on earth would you prefer to be named after a stupid movie monster? Which is a cute fact about the Blob already. <laughs> Not all our recruits came willingly, of course. While Dukes and the other three seemed eager to further our cause, Sean Cassidy, a former Interpol agent, was more reluctant. But I was able to put him under our control using the amazing technology the mutant master had at his disposal. With all the gadgetry he had, it was no wonder he turned down my offer of funding. The long-term plan was to start a third world war by convincing each superpower that the other side had launched a strike. When the two powers wiped each other out, the third factor, us, would take over. Mutants would finally rule. It started to unravel when we kidnapped Xavier, and I began doing surveillance on the X-Men. For one thing, the mutant master was getting more and more unstable. He started firing laser blasts at me to keep me in line, and gave, me ever, and, and gave ever more eccentric orders. But more to the point, I saw something in the X-Men. They were fighting to save humanity, and Dukes and the other mutants we had gathered were all just in it for themselves. They didn't care about the destiny of the human race. They were just thugs who wanted revenge on the X-Men for past indignities. Finally, I realized what was happening. The war we were trying to start wouldn't just wipe out most humans, it would wipe out everything. I checked the mutant master's computer and it confirmed what I was starting to suspect. My boss was trying to kill everyone, mutant and human alike. And that's when I realized why he had access to such amazing technology. The mutant master was an alien trying to destroy the earth. The X-Men had managed to stop the missiles from being fired and had returned to Factor 3's base to stop us. Dukes and the others came prepared to defend the base. Disguising myself as Xavier, I convinced the X-Men to stop fighting their fellow mutants, but rather focused their attention on Factor 3 itself. I also sowed enough doubt in Factor 3's enforcers about their boss's true motives to make the mutant master panic and attack everyone. That did my work for me. Between the X-Men and the Factor 3 enforcers, the mutant master was defeated, his alien nature revealed. In the end, the alien committed suicide when he realized he had failed. The X-Men let everyone go, including me. After all, they're not like the Avengers. They had no authority to arrest us, no facility to imprison us. At first, I returned to Jack Bolton's house in Central City, but I couldn't go back to that life. Seeing the X-Men in action, seeing these kids risking everything to make the world a better place, opened my eyes even more than realizing I was above petty revenge against Johnny Brill. I needed to do something worthwhile for the world I'd almost destroyed. Then the pains started. A trip to the emergency room confirmed that I had cancer. Best guess that was I got it shortly after I started working for Factor 3. It had, gone far too, it had gone too far to be operable, and chemotherapy wound up doing no good whatsoever. The joys of being a mutant, probably. Our kind tend to have an increased resistance to radiation. 
So I went to the one person who would understand a mutant wanting to leave the world a better place than it was when he came in, Xavier. I didn't expect him to ask me to take over as him, but it was something I figured I could handle. I even got to learn something about myself, that I was a telepath too. In some ways, I was glad I didn't find, out, find that out until, a factor, until after Factor 3. If I was even close to being on a par with Xavier then, things might, might have turned out a lot differently. I just read over what I wrote. Wow, I can see why people do this now. It feels kind of good to get all this down on paper like this. Kind of liberating, you know? I'm not sure what anybody, anyone's supposed to get out of my life story. I mean, let's face it. If you're a shape changer, don't hire on as the second in command of a terrorist organization led by an alien out to destroy the planet. Isn't exactly universally applicable advice. Still, maybe it'll do somebody some good sometime. Maybe that somebody will be me. Thoughts? Yeah, just like I kind of read into it. He had enough influence from Professor X and the X-Men to realize that there was more than just conquering and that they're, you know, doing good is a good thing. Also, I've, we keep forgetting to mention that he lived as a woman for a while. <laughs> now, there's a transness to all this, yep. too, which is great. Um, it, also, it also gives us a lot of motivation as to far, like why he ended up with Factor 3 and how he got out of it. So there's a ton of behind the scenes stuff that gives this throwaway character a ton of motivation and heart. Yeah. Oh, I dig it. Isn't it great? Yeah. Okay. Two pages and then I'm done. Cool. September 7th, 6 a.m., had a strange dream last night. A woman was asking me my name, and I couldn't tell her what it was. And what would I tell someone who asked me that now? Charles Sage is a name some nuns made up. John Bolton, jo excuse me, Jack Bolton, John Askegren, Francisco Zarelli, and Martina Johansson were names I made up. Werner Ryman and Charles Xavier are really other people. Even the changeling is a nickname an alien had for me that I took as a cutesy moniker. What will they put on my headstone when I die? I have no idea. I don't even have a proper will. Whose will would it be? Jack Bolton's? He's not real. And any competent lawyer would tear it to ribbons. What kind of legacy am I going to leave? Dear God in heaven, I'm dying and no one will know who I was. 10.20 a.m. What maudlin garbage I wrote before. Oh, well. I left McCoy and Drake. I let McCoy and Drake head into the city for dates with their girlfriends. Meanwhile, Worthington, Summers, and Gray have a session this afternoon. Jean shuddered. That was the day Hank and Bobby first encountered grotesque in the subway. What happened that day would lead to the changeling's death. She wasn't sure she wanted to keep reading, but I've come this far, she thought. I just read what I wrote this morning, and I started thinking about the X-Men. Most of the world doesn't appreciate what they've done. The news is always talking about the Avengers and the Fantastic Four, but never about the X-Men. Or if they do, it's to follow Trask's route and declare them a menace out to destroy humanity. They've saved the world more than once, including from my own organization, and nobody knows. Nobody appreciates them. And yet they keep doing it anyhow. If they all died tomorrow from fighting Magneto or Mastermind, it probably wouldn't make the inner pages of newspapers. They know this, but it doesn't stop them. They keep laying it on the line. Even if it is a lie, I'm supposed to be their mentor. I can do no less. Maybe they won't know who I am when I die, but I'll know. I'm the changeling and I helped save the world. Nobody can take that from me. 11.30 PM, not been a good day. I didn't deal with the X-Men very well at all. 
I think that dream had me more flamboozled than I thought. Or maybe it's this journal. My emotions have been all churned up and it's not allowing me to focus. From what I've been able to read in McCoy's and Drake's thoughts, they followed a nasty mutant who called himself grotesque. They, to make matters worse, Xavier's mutant hunting computer Cerebro has detected Magneto. We may have to deal with him. I need to get a full report from the X-Men. September 8th, 1.05 a.m. The situation with Grotesque is worse than I thought. He's too much for these kids to handle. They've got the heart for it, but I don't think they have the skill. Not that I'm sure I do either, but Grotesque is going to destroy the entire planet. I can't let him do that. I almost destroyed this world once. I'm sure as hell not going to let it die now. I have a plan that should work, but it's risky. I'm recording another one of Xavier's play this if I die messages, just in case. <laughs> He's apparently recorded one of these every time the X-Men are involved in something dangerous. This is the first time I've had to do one. And I'd better tell them about Magneto too, again, just in case. And I still can't get that question out of my head. What will they put on my headstone when I die? That was the final entry. Of course, what they put on his headstone was somebody else's name, Jean thought sadly. She felt Bobby Drake approach the room and quickly put the changeling's journal under the desk. Do I tell them? She asked herself. Then she thought about what the changeling wrote in his journal about sacrificing his life, even if nobody knew. He faced his death with his eyes open. And so do we every day because we believe in what the professor taught us. I have to believe in him now. Genie, the youngest X-Men said as he poked his head into the study. Scott's used Cerebro to track Magneto down and he's come up with another one of his cunning plans to stop him. He uh, wants us downstairs. Of course, Bobby. You okay, Jean? Wiping the tears from her eyes, Jean said, I'll be fine, Bobby. I'll be fine. Aww. I love that he doesn't have an identity. He, he is him, but he has no name that he identifies with. He has no real character that identifies with you know i love this character from this story i love him it's yeah, somehow do. it's almost moon knight-ish a little bit like you could see a series about this guy living these different identities like and trying to have, stop things say again like living all these identities yet not identifying with any of them you know unaware of his own power unsure of where he fits and the story doesn't even mention his stupid fucking hat Yep. But at the same time, like he finally is figuring out who he is and what he wants to be when he dies. That's the tragic thing about it. He's finally identifying like, yeah, these X-Men are good kids. Like, I'm not going to let the world be destroyed. I did that once myself. I'm not going to, you know, let other people do it. You know, like I'm like, he's seen the value in protecting humans and in protecting the world just as he dies, you know? So if this character were to come back on Krakoa, where would he fit? I think he'd be a little higher up there with his experience. I think he'd be like leadership material. <clears throat> almost quiet council material. I see one of two stories for him. Either in a spy format, mm -hmm. like uh, working with X-Force, or just happy to be in a nation of people who care about him and allowed to have his own identity. Yeah. Maybe finally just relaxing and finding himself, you know, maybe brilliant, quiet. Brilliant, brilliant job, uh, Mr. DeCandido, who wrote this story. Again, I want to interview this guy about this story, but uh, much like the changeling, this story is forgotten. I don't think many yeah. people know about it. And it's so good. Yeah. 
no, it really helps make his circle a little bit more tragic and more less shallow, more or less shallow. Yes, those are words. Um, any final thoughts on Changeling before we wrap up a surprisingly long episode on a character <laughs> that nobody cares about? <laughs> no, Chad, two people care about him today. You and me. I want to write this guy now. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, I, I I leave these episodes every time like feeling super inspired by uh, characters that I develop a new understanding for. So, I mean, first off, thank you for spending this time with me. But I really genuinely like this character now. After doing my yeah. research, that's why I had the Changeling Commission for my wall. I'm like, oh, I want him up there now. Yeah. No, I love that the actual changeling means something to me now outside of morph outside of what he's become at long after his death you know because he wasn't anything to begin with but now he's something there too there's two different characters that i appreciate who are the same character basically that's the story i want to tell with this guy i want to tell the story of him going back and finding where he came from yeah uh, finding his parents finding out his birth name is kevin sydney or something else yeah uh yeah brilliant brilliant job i think uh this story which did not need to be told adds so much depth here uh great great i love it i love it um okay as we're wrapping up mr Duvin, thank you thank you for your time i always love spending time with you uh where can people find you online and anything you want to promote or plug yeah well uh you can find me on instagram i am wham barber w-h-a-m my name is George Michael, you know, wham, anyway, wham barber, or you can follow my little growing studio, God Shave the Queen Barber on Instagram. That's where I'm at. I'm just cutting hair. That's the only thing I need to promote. Come let me cut your hair. Barbers and puppies and secret um, basements. Secret basement. <laughs> Come have a changeling experience with me in my studio. No, I'll, I'll morph your, your hair into something good. No, no, get out. You're fired. All right. Goodbye. <laughs> hey, on Grey Milk and Lane, you can always find us on Grey Milk and PP like podcast on Twitter or Grey Milk and underscore Lane on Instagram. Uh, right around this time, this episode comes out, which will be August 28th. We're starting a new month of podcasts. And our first episode in the new month will feature Elliot R. Brown. Oh, no, no. Sorry. It's our feature episode on. Uh, Oh, no, not that either. Jeez, I got to look at my calendar. Uh, this will be our episode uh, with uh, our interview with Sandy Plunkett uh, reviewing Fantastic Four number 36. Uh, crazy stuff coming up. Our next Patreon episode is going to be uh, all about the unicorn who is a weird Iron Man villain who fought the X-Men one time. But Daryl Lawrence and I picked this character and I fucking love him. He's great. I've never thought about this character twice and I fucking love him. So come back for unicorn next time. Uh, and then one we got hat to another. He's weird, man. It's not just a hat. He has an eyeball under there that also consumes <laughs> food. He feeds it sometimes. Oh, it's so ahead. weird. He's so weird. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we'll see you guys back here next time uh, on our next Patreon episode. And uh, Mr. Duvin, I love your face. Thanks for hanging with me today. Thank you, Chad. Your face is pretty good too. I know. I work out. Just uh, <laughs> I have nothing to do. All right. Bye, everybody. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.